Second line at the end, yet we do hold firmly to these truths as we see them and call on others to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. As conversation and debate take place, it may be that we will learn from each other and the boundaries will be adjusted, even possibly folding formerly disagreeing groups into closer fellowship. And then the note at the end of our Elder Affirmation says, The many biblical descriptions of God's work and salvation are diverse. Therefore, similar or identical terms may be used differently in different contexts. Our aim in this affirmation of faith is not to limit how biblical writers can use the terms we use here, or to say that the terms of this affirmation may not be used differently by the biblical writers in various contexts. But rather, our aim is to claim that the reality described here is in fact biblical reality. So if anybody's new to this journey, we've taken... Uh, now, as I mentioned, 45 Sundays to talk. This is awesome. This is really good. Like, it, it makes me think, with Ronnie up there and Zach back there, it makes me think of Eutychus in the book of Acts that, who fell out a window when Paul was preaching. So if, you, uh, yeah, if I go long enough and Ronnie falls asleep and falls over, it'd be good. Um, okay, so if you're just joining us and you just heard me read 15.1, 2, 3, 4, and it's like, what is all that mumbo-jumbo? It is an expression that our church embraces of having to take the whole Bible and squeeze down as tight as we can. What does the Bible say about God or the persons of the triune God or salvation or sin or the church? So this is our statement of faith. That's the last article. It probably doesn't give you the you know, spiritual fire for the Lord to hear that. The last, Af- the last article um, in all the wording of it is an effort at a humble expression of we don't think we see the world perfectly. We're still fallen. We may be wrong about some of the things that we hold precious, that we think we've gotten from the Bible. However we do find them to be, best we understand, biblically faithful expressions. And where we're wrong, may we help each other to grow. But in it all, may we love our brothers and sisters who might disagree with us on what we've described the last two weeks as secondary issues. Today what I want to do in the so what talk, uh, practical theology, how does this affect our actual life, is look at three things together. One is maturing in our individual ability to do what I call theological triage, that's actually a sign of growing in grace. To be less two-dimensional, yes, no, black, white, right, wrong. That's oftentimes, not always, a sign of spiritual immaturity. The more you grow, you don't waffle on the truth. You don't get softer on core doctrine. You just get a little more depth perception. Because guess what? You don't believe today all the things you once believed yesterday, and God was very, very patient with you as he grew you. So spiritual maturity helps you to do a little bit of triage. We'll talk about that. What are some good guideposts? How can we make sure that the things we believe are in accord with the solid truth that a lot of other godly people have also seen in Scripture? Because surprise, surprise, If you learn something new that no Christian has ever believed before, you're wrong. (laughs) So 
some what are some good guideposts? And then finally, uh, growing in theological integrity. How can we actually mature? Like that statement expresses we want to do. So how can we do that? All right, those are the three things we're going to try to talk about. First, maturing in theological triage. I stole that phrase from several authors. Uh, Al Mohler, Gavin Orton, Trevin Wax, others have used that term. It, it's got some limitations. I'll try to draw out in a minute. But some have pushed back on the idea of theological triage. This is what Trevin Wax wrote. He's a writer of a number of books and journals online in the Christian world. He said, this analogy obviously breaks down at certain points. Theological triage. Triage is a medical emergency and somebody who knows what they're doing is trying to assess how significant the emergency is in comparison to the ten other people sitting in the emergency room who also need immediate care. And so... Somebody needs to make a decision, even if this person came in third, is their issue more urgent than the person who came in first? And so they're bumping people up and down the line all the time based on the severity of the need. We need to be able to do that with theological categories. Okay, uh, so Trevor Wax says that illustration breaks down at some points. That's pretty obvious. Um, Critics of theological triage make salient points about that analogy and the problems with it. So all truth is vitally important. So we're not denigrating the importance of truth when we think about triage. So Al Mohler said, here's how we can mature in that. July 2005, he wrote an article called Theological Triage and how we can mature. He gives three different categories that we should try to not force truth into, but see, do they fit under kind of tier one, tier two, tier three? Before I show you those, let me read something he wrote. A discipline of theological triage would require Christians to determine a scale of theological urgency that would correspond to that medical world's framework of medical priority. With that in mind, Mueller said he suggests three different levels of theological urgency each corresponding to a set of issues and theological priorities found in various doctrinal debates. So what are those three areas? He calls them first order, second order, and third order issues. And this is how Moeller would break them down. First order issues. These are the doctrines that we've talked about in the last two weeks that are essential to the Christian faith. I'll... I went back and listened because I was like, man, I don't know if I said that the way I would have wanted to say it had I thought about it better. I'm actually going to repeat what I said last time. There are irreducible minimums in the Christian faith. You must know those truths and believe them to be a Christian. What I said last time, and this is what I want to reemphasize, is you don't have to have an exhaustive list of those things in your gospel presentation to be saved or for the person you're evangelizing to be converted. But someone must not deny them in order to be regenerate. So you can't say, oh no, I don't believe Jesus died as a substitute for our sins and be saved. That's an irreducible minimum. That also has to be in the gospel presentation. But 
as we're doing these first order issues and thinking about the core of the Christian faith, um, I think Moeller's, Moeller is on to something here. And here's one quote from him. First level theological issues would include those doctrines most central and most essential to the Christian faith. Included among these most crucial doctrines would be things such as Trinity, full deity and humanity of Jesus, justification by faith, that's one I hit last time from several creeds and confessions, and the authority of Scripture. Muller went on to write, in the earliest centuries of the Christian movement, heretics directed their most dangerous attacks upon the church's understanding of Jesus. So if you go back and look at the earliest creeds, they're really articulating a biblical understanding of Christology. Who is Jesus? Then, the attacks started to come, uh, not only on the essence of Christ as the Son of God, but also things related to relationships between the Father and the Son. And so issues of the Trinity started to be attacked. And if you trace the history of the creeds and councils, it wasn't a bunch of godly people having a good idea to get together and say, hey, let's write something awesome that people will still be talking about 2,000 years from now. They were not as proactive as that. They're actually more reactive. Heresies emerged. Then church leaders got together and said, we have to speak to this. Then came the creeds that we now hold precious. And so when the debates about the Trinity started to arise in the early centuries, especially third century, the Athanasian Creed was the response of the church to that. Okay, so the earliest creeds and councils were in essence emergency measures, that was a theological triage issue, taken to protect the central core Christian doctrines that you must hold in order to be regenerate. In fact, the Athanasian Creed begins, this is almost a quote, it may be a direct quote, anyone who does not embrace this wholly and fully cannot be saved. And then it's a statement on the Trinity. So it's a core doctrine. Similarly, Nicaea, Constantinople, Chalcedon, those are creeds, confessions uh, that the church has held for good reason as essential. All right, so a first order issue is what I just described. Muller said a second order issue. These are doctrines distinguished from first order by the fact that believing Christians might disagree on these issues. Though the disagreements will create significant boundaries between believers. When Christians organize themselves into congregations and denominational forms, these boundaries become more evident. This is what Derek was saying at the end of last week's class. It's not a disagreement among gospel-believing, Bible-believing people who organize differently. It's not a disagreement on first-order issues. We're not ready to anathematize and call everybody else a heretic who's not, for example, though they're wrong, Baptistic, all right? Um, in my humble and most accurate opinion, all right? It, they're not heretics. In fact, when they get to heaven, they'll realize we were right. <laughs> uh, no, we believe the same core doctrine. We disagree on what Muller's calling a second-order issue. So he writes, second-order issues would include the meaning and mode of baptism, Baptists and Presbyterians, for example, fervently disagree over the most basic understanding of Christian baptism. 
The practice of infant baptism is inconceivable to the Baptist mind, amen, while Presbyterians trace infant baptism to their most basic understanding of the covenant. Right? We disagree on an organizational polity ecclesia, ecclesiastical issue, not on a salvation issue. We're totally agreed on that. Okay. Um, continuing on second order issues, Moeller said, standing together on the first order doctrines, Baptists and Presbyterians eagerly recognize each other as believing Christians, but recognize that disagreement on issues of this importance will prevent fellowship within the same congregation or denomination. Okay? You can ask questions about that later if you'd like. Third order issues. Again, this is Moeller. He said, I would put most of the debates over eschatology, for example, in the third order category. Christians who affirm the bodily, historical, and victorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ may differ over timetable and sequence without rupturing the fellowship of the church. There are congregations, I think this is unwise. They think I'm unwise for thinking that they're unwise. All right? I think it's unwise to put eschatological perspectives in your member affirmation of faith. There are churches that do that. So, for example, to join church A, you would have to be willing to embrace a premillennial view of eschatology, the end times. Well, even if I held that view, I don't think it should be imposed on other Christians who don't in order to join the same church. So I would say just take that out of your member affirmation of faith because I, I would agree with Muller that's a third order issue. Not even, a, not even a division over local church fellowship. So Muller wrote, I don't have this quote on there, but I have it in my notes. Um, Third order issues are doctrines over which Christians may disagree and remain in close fellowship, even within local congregations. Christians may find themselves in disagreement over any number of re- issues related to the interpretation of difficult text, the understanding of matters uh, or the understanding of matters of common disagreement. Nevertheless, standing together on issues of more urgent importance, believers are able to accept one another without compromise when third-order issues are in question. So Trevin Wax asked Gavin Ortland about third-order issues, and he wrote this. Gavin Ortland and I agreed that Calvinism and Arminianism would be a third-ranked doctrine when the debate remains focused on narrow soteriological distinctions. Somebody has asked, many have not many, more than one have asked me, do you have to be reformed to be a member of Grace Church? My answer to that, I would die on this hill. A resounding no. No. You don't even have to know the categories exist. You don't even have to know there's been 2,000 years of debate. You just have to be on the same page on the gospel. And if we disagree on, on that issue, again, when, when you get to heaven, you'll realize how right I was. But uh, no, it, that's, that's not an issue for separating fellowship. Are people today making that an issue for separation of fellowship? Absolutely. I think that's unhealthy for the church at large, unwise for Christians on an individual level. Okay, so there's theological triage, how we can mature in it. The other two are pretty simple and straightforward. Like, where can I go to learn? Where can I go to grow? What are some safe guides? 
Well, in God's providence, I just heard today in a Kevin DeYoung interview of Endeavor that there's a book that's available. Van Drunen, I think is the author, who has compiled all the creeds, councils, and confessions into one book. And that would be a good theological guidepost because I literally put into my notes the creeds and councils and historic affirmations of faith. I think that dude whose name I just said got all of them and put them into one book that you can find. Anybody know the title of this? Van Drunen, Creeds, Confessions, Councils. All right, stay tuned. Those who have access to our little church gizmo gadget, I'll, I'll try to remember to post a link to it on there. So what do we mean? What creeds and councils are we talking about? What affirmations are we talking about? I'm glad you asked. The Apostles' Creed, Nicaea, Constantinople, those are two iterations of the same creed. The Athanasian Creed is the one on the Trinity. Um, These creeds have an interesting place in contemporary Western church life. Guess who recites the Apostles' Creed most that I'm aware of? Mainline churches, who I think have mostly defected from first-order issues. The one true gospel. I think some get it really, really wrong who cite the Apostles' Creed almost weekly in their services. Uh, I know a church in Memphis that does cite the Apostles' Creed weekly whose pastor does not know the gospel. But these are good guideposts. They will tell you true things, especially if you take them together and read the multiple iterations. Nicaea on Christology? Absolutely. I'm a Nicene Christian through and through. Athanasian Creed, same. Affirmations of faith, there's a lot of good ones in church history, but here's some. Uh, Westminster Confession, that's a Presbyterian work written by a council of Presbyterian uh, pastor scholars. 1689 London Baptist Confession is the baptized version of the Westminster Confession. Uh, It's fantastic. The Abstract of Principles we mentioned last week is the Statement of Faith for Southern uh, Theological Seminary in Louisville. Very Baptistic understanding of the core doctrines. And then the one we've been teaching through, 45 lessons now on the Grace Church Elder Affirmation of Faith. It just builds on all these others or steals from them. It doesn't build on them. Ben Bailey, thank God for that, brother, I think has taken all 45 of these lessons and put them on a podcast you can just click and listen to. And if you want a core doctrine series, they're all there. Uh, So those would be some good guideposts. Finally, not just some like small statements with good guideposts. How can we go deep and deal with real nuance, wrestle with a lot of passages of Scripture? Well, here's some recommended resources. Um, make sure I know where I'm going in my own notes. Okay, uh, one is Gavin's book that I've referenced a couple times, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. The subtitle, I don't know if you can see it, The Case for Theological Triage. He's just helping outline what are your heels to die on and and how do you discern that in your biblical theology. Trevor Wax said about this, he uses the concept of triage in the context of theology in order to make two points. Number one, 
Doctrines have different kinds of importance. Some hills are worth dying on. Others are not. The second point this book makes is triage assumes that some needs are more urgent than others. The more demanding the issues, the more you have to make hard decisions. And there's a reason Jesus said, I came to divide father, mother, you know, brother, sister. Because there are issues that allegiance to Jesus means horizontal allegiances can no longer remain what they once were. Alright, so that's a good source. This is a bigger one. It's called When Doctrine Divides the People of God. Top bubble, bottom bubble, Ryan Putnam. And uh, it's like a 300-page book trying to answer the first part of the book. Uh, answers the first question, When Doctrine Divides. Giving readers a greater understanding of the reasons we approach the task of biblical interpretation and application differently. We read imperfectly. We, we are fallible in our interpretation. And we read differently. We feel differently. And this book makes this contribution, helping us understand the role of our own emotions in Bible interpretation. Um, at Grace Church, we love each other enough to say, just because you feel like it's true doesn't make it true. You might feel like doing all kind of wrong things that would hurt you, dishonor God, and be sinful. So your emotions do play a role in your interpretation. But your heart should follow your head. And we know that because God wrote us a book. And so you have to train your emotions, your feeling, on the basis of truth. All right, so those are two recommended resources on that level. And then uh, I have more uh, kind of dense stuff. A lot of you have some of these. Some of you may have all of these. I think this is a fantastic systematic theology. I recommend it over Grudem's now, which I have recommended for years. They're both good contemporary systematic theologies. They take all the stuff we've talked about in 45 Lessons and do it topic by topic. But this one is especially written it's called A Theology for the Church uh, by Danny Aiken. It's a big kind of doorstopper. But you could pick a topic. What does the Bible have to say about sin? What does the Bible have to say about Jesus? What does the Bible have to say about salvation? The church. And you could just go through one section pretty quickly if you have some focused questions. Uh, it, it's fantastic. This has a sore spot in my life. It's one of the best systematic theology books I've ever read. Thomas Watson, Puritan pastor, Body of Divinity, he walks through the Westminster Confession, article by article, and explains it biblically. Rich, so good. The reason it's got a sore spot, the day I finished it, it's microscopic print, hard read, the day I finished it, I left that mug in the back pocket seat on an airplane and walked off. And I had notes on every page. Oh, and I, I'm, I'm, I, I can't bring myself to reread it and make all my notes again. But it's fantastic. Uh, and then J.I. Packer's A Concise Theology. I gave this out. Uh, Mr. Baker in here? Hey, down the hallway. Overflow crowd. All right, Phil, poke your head in. Okay, he's, he's busy. Uh, Phil Baker took the copy when I held it up week one, two, or three of this whole series and said, anybody who will read this whole thing and put a comment on our church center, a little church's app we use, um, 
And Phil took it. He, he's working his way through it, maybe already done with it. But he's going to put a post up soon with some thoughts on that resource. And maybe it'll prompt you to want to go get it. All right. So that's a little bit of practical theology, theological triage, maturing in our understanding of first, second, so far, so forth order issues. And I just want to say to you guys, congratulations. You made it. The endurance test. You get extra jewels in your crown in heaven for going through this study. Um, who thinks they've been part of all 45? I'd just be shocked. From Zoom to today, any like star students, perfect attendance sticker award? Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Uh, I don't even know if Jesus came to them all. Right, that's a lot. All right. Um, if you have questions about core doctrines of the Bible, I would recommend you just find whatever section of the Affirmation of Faith talks about that and listen to those three weeks of podcasts that Ben's put out there for us. Before I take some questions, let me tell you where we're headed next. Uh, I mentioned this. This is uh, what the slides will look like, Lord willing, in February. I've put together the first two lessons. We'll do biblical interpretations, really hermeneutics, how to read Scripture. Uh, I've profited so much from Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes' book called Grasping God's Word. We'll use it as a guide. It'll be 18 lessons. The first one will be on translations. I have 97 slides for uh, February 5th, so we'll see if that becomes 19 lessons or 20 lessons. But I am going to try to consolidate so that we can keep moving. But it's going to deal with like all the different parts of the Bible. The Bible's a big book. A lot of it's hard to understand. How do we read it? That's what we'll be doing, and then we'll follow that 18 lessons, Lord willing, with six sessions on Romans 8, on a screen, doing it together. And we'll just be walking through it, helping each other apply the stuff we've been talking about. That's next year, and then I'm going to go ahead and give you a tease for the next year, because in February, you're going to help us build it. At our February members meeting, others can contribute to this too, we're going to release a little survey that we're going to remind you about all year. And the survey is, what's the hardest stuff you deal with? In your own heart? In your workplace? Evangelizing your friends? Big questions you have about Christian versus whatever other religion? What's the big stuff? Social issues? Sexual revolution, ethnic harmony, what is it? And then the next year, we're going to spend the fall of next year as elders building biblical lessons to try to directly speak to those issues. And that'll be the whole next year. So just be thinking about that, and you probably already got a list of five of them. You can tell us right now. Um, but that's where we're headed. Okay, we got like seven-ish minutes if we want to use it. Comments or questions about uh, anything from today or doctrine? Yes, brother. I think that guy's last name, name was Van Dixhorn. Sounds great. Is that one word or two? Confessions and Catechisms. That's it. Yeah, it's two words. Van Dixhorn is on his own. Okay, thank you. Creeds, Confessions, Catechisms. And if I understand correctly, it's got them all down in that one thing. Thank you. Any questions, comments?
trying to see if I can show you guys something that's not on those slides, but I'm sure there's a way. Yes, brother. So you said that when the heart and the mind are at odds, essentially kind of arguing mm -hmm. with the over doctrine, that the mind must rule over the heart because God wrote as a book. And but the Hebrews believed that the seat of volition was the combination of both those things, that decisions were made based upon both heart and mind, that outcomes were based upon both heart and mind. How can you So, like, when you're feeling guilty because you take a stance, mm. and then you don't let yourself walk in that stance, mm. how do you override that guilt? Man. I mean, I'll tell you what I do, and I'd love to hear from others. No flattery. I spend time with people like you. This is what I do. I honestly have no idea how people make it who are not meaningfully connected to a Jesus-focused local church. I have no idea. It's like you're in a free fall. Where do you land? What do you, what do, you do? And I'm looking around the room, and I know all sorts of hardships and heartaches. Y'all know something about me. I don't even know how you get through it. So I feel... Totally disintegrated. I know, I, I could quote you three verses where God told me something about don't worry. But I can't, I, my heart can't catch up to it. So what do I do? I'll do what I do. I spend time with you. That's what I do. And I talk to you. To be truly known, truly loved is both terrifying and exhilarating. But um, we have to help each other. So I was saying to a church member this morning who asked a question about totally believing good things about the question. But the question was the importance of church. And I'm a pastor, so I'm sure a very pastory answer was rightfully expected. But church attendance, tell me why you should attend church. Well, I hope you could all give me some good biblical verse answers. There are answers black ink, white paper, God said it, you don't need special powers of interpretation, but you know why else you need to attend? Because there's a three-year-old kid over there that you have no idea you're about to see. And if you know them well enough and they would appreciate it and their parents approve, caveating galore, and you give them that quick little hug, it shapes their worldview to think this is a safe family. So that when they're 30 years old, they're still coming. And somewhere between now and then, they're hearing the gospel so much and the Holy Spirit causes them to be born again that they start discipling somebody else who has a three-year-old that you never know. It's just crazy why you need a church. It's also because when you're struggling and you have no idea... No, let me say it better. This is what I said to the person this morning. They have no idea how you're struggling. But in that side comment, in that quick conversation... In the hallway, they say something to you that you really need it. Like, you need a church for 10 billion reasons. And you don't even know all those reasons until it happens. And some of them you'll never know because God only lets you see like 3%, so you won't get prideful. 
about all the ways he's using you. But he's using you like crazy to encourage other Christians just by virtue of being part of a body. So I asked the person, how, how excited are you right now about your left patellar tendon? And, you know, you don't ever think about that. It, but that's part of your body. And you're really glad you got it. And it's doing a good job if it all works well. Some of us have had knee blowouts and probably don't work well. But you're part of a body. And uh, you're strengthened and so are others. Because you're just part of that body. So my answer to, to that is, man, I said something last week too about that, that I would, I, I would correct myself. I would say it differently. I said top three decisions in life is church. So if you get a big promotion at work in another city, question one is, is there a good church there? Or you're choosing a college. Question one is, is there a good church there? Or whatever in life is happening. It's like, boom. Why? Is that overstatement? I don't think so. Because the diet you're fed, the relationships you have, are going to dictate more about your life. I'm talking about that diet in a church, those relationships, than almost anything else. So I said top three. I think I'd bump it to two. Only behind. Who are you going to marry? And then you should make that decision based on agreement on the second decision. So it automatically ties it for first. So it's just like, I don't know anything more important. Uh, I seriously don't know what people do who don't have a church to lean on, love, walk with. Like That's the only, only thing I know how to do. Well, thank you, Tim, for the question. Thank you, Jordan, for being a long-winded answerer. Uh, so that's all the time we have. I was going to show you a, a phrase that it's worth putting on the screen. For those who are about here, I don't know a better way to do this. This is Joshua 24. Oh, that's that's Joshua 24. From Hebrews in uh, a church in Midtown this morning. Look at all my Hebrew stuff up there. Ah, this is worth it. Trust me. There we go. Joshua 24. If you go down here, after this covenant renewal moment, this is the passage for today's sermon. Uh, there it is. This is a crazy sentence. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. Total rest in the land, promises fulfilled, go home and enjoy the good, the good land God gave you. It's done. It happens. And the promise was first made to Abraham, Genesis 12. And from then until that sentence, nobody said that. And I promise you, for 400 years in Egypt, a lot of people doubted. And I promise you, in the wilderness, and when King Sihon and Og and the walls of Jericho and 10,000 other obstacles were in the way, it was really hard to believe that was ever going to happen. And one day really soon, you're not going to be able to not believe that every promise God ever made is absolutely rock solid. So I don't know if I'll get to say it in the sermon, because y'all know me, but uh, there you go. You got some extra. Love y'all so much. You're dismissed.